you saw in the title there, this is a song of ascents or degrees, or the Hebrew word also means steps. A song of ascents, a song of degrees or going up, a song of steps. And there are 15 of these songs put together in this section of the book of Psalms in a special way. This is the second of them. They begin in Psalm 120 and end in Psalm 134. And we know why that was done, that they were put together as a series, all given the same title, so that they would be sung together in succession for pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem to keep the feasts, to keep the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles There was a group of feasts in the springtime and in the summer and in the fall. This was the highlight of believing in Jehovah and hoping in his Messiah was to go to the temple when you lived very far away in Israel or even further. You could have been thousands of miles away, somewhere in Europe or in Asia, and this was the highlight of your faith, to be with the large multitude gathering together as one church in Jerusalem to see the priesthood with your eyes, not just with faith, but to see it with your eyes, to see the temple in person and knowing that God's glory dwelt within that temple and that the priesthood headed up by the high priest would go inside and the sins of the people would be forgiven. As you can imagine, singing was a big part of that whole event and that journey. These psalms were then, they'd been written at different times, but they were put together to describe the journey taken as a pilgrim living far away, coming to Jerusalem each year to do this. A long journey, sometimes a treacherous or dangerous journey. Reference in this psalm, for example, in verse 3, he will not allow your foot to slip, he who keeps you will not slumber. In verse 6, the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. So that's talking about the, the physical danger in traveling so far in the ancient world and not having the protections that we have today. And these psalms, you can see, would be very appropriate to sing as you went with your family for weeks traveling all the way to Jerusalem, a very special time for a family of faith indeed. And you can see that while they're making their way to Jerusalem, what they're doing is making their way to God's presence, to God's house. And that's important as we go into the psalm to understand that, that when the people of faith in the Old Covenant were going to Jerusalem, it was not just a physical city they were going to, but the place where God's presence was, where he revealed himself, where his priesthood and his covenant mercy was seen, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the blood was sprinkled on it, and the place where the declaration of forgiveness of sins was made. This was all special to an Old Testament believer. And you can see the journey as you look through these psalms. I can note a few for you. Uh, For example, in the next psalm, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the Lord's house. Our feet are now standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built compact, close together, impregnable as a city. The tribes go up there to the testimony or the Ark of the Covenant of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
Oh, pray for Jerusalem. Pray for its peace, whoever lives within it. Say to the inhabitants, peace be within you. Because of this house of the Lord our God, I will seek its good. You see how clear that theme is. They're moving towards Jerusalem. And in Psalm 122, they've arrived in Jerusalem. See in Psalm 124, a psalm of protection. If the Lord had not been on our side, uh, we would have been slain and swallowed up by the enemy. It's dangerous. Swelling waves would have covered our soul. But blessed be the Lord who did not give us as prey to their teeth. Our soul escaped as a bird from the fowler's snare. Our help is in his name. You see, as they're in Jerusalem, they're reflecting on that journey of faith, that it was dangerous, that there are perils, there are enemies, there is the devil and all of his agents, there, there is man and his flesh and sin. It's dangerous for someone who loves God. It's dangerous for a Jew, or as Paul would say of us, the true Israelites, the true Jews, who are the Christian people, people who love Christ. Dangerous journey, Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in Mount Zion cannot be moved. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth unto eternity. You see how the compilers of the book of Psalms took David's Psalms and put them together because they pictured this journey to that mountain, to that house, the mountain that God chose to come down and locate himself in a temple in the day of Solomon, that he rests there. This is the place of my rest where I abide forever. His Shekinah glory, the luminous light of God's presence in Christ, filling the Holy of Holies, and the grace upon the priesthood and all the families of Jerusalem. A great picture of God coming down onto the earth and being with his people, and being in fellowship with them, as he is with us this morning in Christ. We look at this picture and we see ourselves. We we know Christ has come down in the flesh, but he's come down, as I mentioned, into the believer to fill the spiritual Jerusalem of the church. And just as they went up to that city to see where God had descended, well, what can we say more than a Jew that we say he didn't descend in Jerusalem ultimately, but he descended into Christians, that his spirit was poured out and came down by the power of Jesus Christ. They go up to a house and temple, and we think of that temple too. Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who'd awoken from a dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter. It's great to be in Jerusalem, to have your sins forgiven, to know the God of salvation. And it fills our mouths with laughter and joy in Christ. The great blessing of Psalm 133 towards the end of the set of Psalms. How good a thing it is when brothers dwell together in unity together. It's like the precious oil of the priest going down on his head and covering his garment. It's like the dew of Hermon that descends on the mountain of Zion as a mist, watering it, making it fertile and alive to bring forth plants and crops and to give water to the area. The Holy Spirit comes down and sanctifies and makes fertile Mount Zion, the church. 
These are wonderful pictures. That's why they want to be in Jerusalem. The high priest is there, and the oil has come upon him, and the water has come upon Mount Zion, and that is the place of life and fertility and fruitfulness and God's spiritual presence. For there the Lord commands his blessing, eternal life, Psalm 133 says. Jesus didn't make up the phrase eternal life. It's in the Old Testament. There the blessing God commands, life that never ends. And the very last Psalm. See what Psalm 134 says to conclude this. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who by night stand in his house. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. These are men, priests, who have a special privilege because they basically live in God's house. They don't just go to it, but they're in there at night, trimming the lamp, making the bread, praying and offering incense. They have the privilege of living in the eternal house of God in his presence and fellowship. Bless them, those who minister at night in his temple, because he's there with them. Now, as we've gone through that, I think the idea um, is clear. These are psalms of ascent, not just to tell the Jew that he's going up to Jerusalem for a manner of weeks to see all of this, but these are psalms of ascent for us that tell us that we are scattered throughout the world spiritually and we're on our way somewhere. We're on a journey. We're pilgrims. We're making our way somewhere through these dangers and our eyes are fixed on the temple of God, that God's presence did not just come down onto Jerusalem, but it's a picture of his presence that came down to the greatest mountain of all, heaven itself, Mount Zion, heaven that God came down and filled heaven when he created it. God came down there, and there is his great temple with the doors open for worship, with the veil rent in two, and where Christ the high priest is anointed and seated in that temple. And as the spiritual Jews are going through this world, and as David says in Psalm 23, until I dwell in the house of the Lord forever, we are looking to that temple and the one who's in that temple the son of God who reveals the father and who fills it with his spirit the triune God fills heaven and there are worshippers there in Jerusalem who are not at work throughout the year anymore laboring and sweating and toiling but they are there at the feast at the festival they are at the temple they are filled with laughter and joy And they can see the high priest and his glory. And they minister by night in his temple. They live there. Remember what Jesus said? In my father's house, there are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. So the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms about us ascending step by step through these mountains and valleys and ravines on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's my privilege to preach this to you. This is what this is the truth of Christianity. Nothing in the world and no other religion compares to this. This has been revealed by Jehovah. This is the truth of our reality. That when we die 
a decision is made and finalized of a place we go. And for the believer, that place is the house of God. For the unbeliever is the everlasting darkness and so on. So we can look at this psalm this morning and marvel and thirst and be stimulated and have our faith stimulated by this picture from God that tells us where we're going if we know and love Christ. Traveling to heaven, as John Bunyan pictured the Christian pilgrim in his book, traveling through all of these obstacles to the celestial city of the new Jerusalem. So the question in the psalm that is the theme of the psalm is a spiritual one, not a physical one. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help and aid? The question is not who will help us physically reach a feast, but the question is, in such a dangerous world with a weak faith, a faith that often stumbles, our own sin, difficulties, complications in our minds and hearts, tiredness, weariness. When we look at this journey and look at the destination, when we look up to the hills and see how far away we must travel, from where comes our help to protect us on this journey? And the answer this morning tells us a few things about God. It tells us initially that he is God and he is a specific God who helps us. Where does our help come? In difficulties, trials, bereavements, disease, the thing that's all over the news right now, where does our help come? Our help cometh from the Lord, God. That's what man doesn't understand. It's right to use science, it's right to to create the medicines and take them and to make plans. But above that, who's in control? What world are we living in? Who's sovereign? There is a God who made all things. That's why David mentions that. It's not a superfluous mention that he just tells us he made heaven and earth and then he protects you. David is saying he will protect you and you must trust in that protection. Why? Think, he says, he made heaven and earth. There is a God who made all things. He made the heavens and he made the world. He made the stars. He made all that's physical. He made all the dark energy. He made gravity. He built the cosmos by the word of his power from nothing. It displays like a mirror his glory. And he made the world to live. It's full of life and plants and animals and people and water and oxygen and color. He made it all to live. And he made you. Who will help you? The God who made you. Who made your body. Who breathed your soul into life. In his image. You are his image bearer. You matter to God. Even in your sin, you matter to God. Who will help you? The one who made you. Do parents not want to help their children even naturally anyway? How much more in Christ for an adopted Christian? I mean, we love our children. It's our duty, our instinctive duty to provide and protect for them. Well, God sees his image in the image bearers of Christ, the adopted ones, the sons and the daughters. Who will help us? God. 
So look up in the day and the night and look around and even look through the microscope at the cells and the complexity that's in you, the immense unimaginable design that's in you and ask who did all this and why did he do it and if he made us all then he is over all if he created us he owns us if he created us he's sovereign over us this is his world David says our help cometh from the Lord but it's not any God is it you know that as you read it it's the Lord it's not just the God of power it is the Lord Jehovah, that's his name in capital letters there. Our help comes from Jehovah, from him who says, I am, who binds in love and blood a covenant to his people, the personal covenant saving God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him who helps. He helps David. He helps the Jew. He helps the Christian. In this new covenant age. It's him that helps. Not just a power but a person. Covenant God who says. Trust me in Christ for I am. That is what I am and who I am. I just am. You look there and he says I am. You look there he says I am here. You go into the depths of the sea or into the sky. I am here. I am even in your body, in the little cells and in the DNA. He's there. There's nowhere he is not. Whatever you look in the creation, God says, I am. But in Christ, that I am, he binds himself to the Christian in Christ, to the forgiven, to the justified and cleansed. That's the covenant that he swore on oath. He binds himself as a father and husband to his people. And it is the Lord that we must look to for help. The world will not look to the Lord, to Jehovah. There's even people in the church who do not look to Jehovah. They have a kind of Gnostic or a a kind of general view of God that is not the specific God of the Bible. The God who enters a covenant of redemption and grace to save those sinners whose sin is an offense to him but he shows them mercy. I look to the hills and to the temple in Jerusalem because there is Jehovah, the God of mercy and atonement, the God who sheds blood, the God who cleanses with blood, the God who is merciful, gracious, and long-suffering to those who love him in covenant, but will visit iniquity to his enemies. That is the God who must help. He's the only God there is. And only in Christ can we be helped by God. General prayers and our thoughts are with you and uh, praying, hashtag praying, so on, are the attempts of man to deal with this reality. He thinks maybe God will hear him. He thinks maybe God will do something for him. But only in Jesus Christ will God help us. He is God's help. He is God's keeper. My help comes from the Lord. And outside of that covenant there is no help. Only in Christ can a man be united to God and a woman. Only in Christ can a sinner ask God for help. He is God's son. He is the propitiation for sin. He is God's covenant. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by him. Honor him and come through him with prayer and a plea for help. He doesn't just get help for us from Jehovah. He is Jehovah. He will not help anyone who hates his father, who ignores his father. He is Jehovah, Jesus, the I am himself. Before Abraham was, I am. He is I am. The Father is I am. The Spirit who dwells in the church is I am. These are serious things that we must get right. This is who God is. He will help man. But only if man comes through the way that he is provided that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in him, that we would be reconciled to God. He can't come and ask God for help in grieving, in pain, in sin, in failure and falling if you've deserted God in any way in the diseases that are going around right now, in the needs people have in the society, in the economy, people whose businesses may be failing. This is a difficult time to be alive. So much is promised to man, and so many of those promises cannot deliver. But no one can ask God for help without his mercy in Christ. His righteousness is too high. His his justice is too pure and great. His holiness is too beautiful. His honor is too worthy that for a a wretched, unclean sinner to turn to him and say, you must help me, he's under no obligation to help a dying, sinful, rebellious man or woman outside of Christ. He is too good to do that. Too pure, too holy that he must maintain that and say, if you want to enter my house, that no man has any right to just wander into God's presence, unclean, and say, you must help me. He says, no, to know me, you must be holy as I am holy, and so on. It's this Lord that helps. It is this Christ who helps. It's him that's king and that will keep and protect his people. So David, first of all, says, if we want help and protection... It must be in Jesus Christ to the Father of the Covenant. What else does David tell us? Well, if we know him for us this morning in that covenant in Christ, he tells us that we will be protected because this Lord is sovereign. He will not allow, verse 3, your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Jew took this as a promise for some physical protection, and that's fine. God uh, did that for the Jew, and he even does it for the Christian. And marvelously, God even does it for people who are not Christians. He sustains them. He makes sure they're not in accidents. He gives them a time of mercy, an opportunity to respond to the gospel. There's people all over the world right now that are protected by the sheer benevolence and the lack of animosity that God has the restraint he shows, and they're protected physically. And as a Christian, we have a right to uh, ask that too. It's right to ask for these things. 
We sang Psalm 91, no evil shall befall you, no plague shall come to your door. We can ask that under certain conditions. Lord, if it be your will, if it be your will, keep me physically, keep my family physically, the community, keep it physically. Let the gospel flourish in this. Protect the members of our church, Lord. Keep them safe. Guard them physically. Give your angels charge over them and protect them. These are good things to pray, and there's warrant for praying them, as long as we don't read Psalm 91 or other places in Scripture that promise us a kind of invincibility. Because God works through protection, but he also works through afflicting us and making us suffer. Not in a harsh way. It's for our good, and sometimes we can witness through suffering. Jesus is the greatest example, is he not? That through his suffering, God is revealed. And Paul suffered, as many people in church history have suffered, and Christians suffer. God even says in a place in the Old Testament that no one takes it to heart, that the righteous are taken away from the evil of the earth, that God will even afflict or even disease a Christian out of mercy and remove them from the evil of that generation. There's all kinds of reasons God afflicts us that we may get sick or that we may be in some kind of accident. God doesn't say in the Bible, if you love me, if you're faithful to me, everything will be safe. And if something terrible happens, question your faith. Assume that I'm punishing you. That's not the way it works. So you will not let my foot slip at all. You will not expose me to danger. God may do that in certain ways for us, but I think the promise is emphatically true in all cases, spiritually for a Christian, that um, our body may perish, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And what God does promise is that once we have faith and we're saved and we're regenerated, that faith cannot die if it's real. And the sanctification will be ongoing. The, The belief can't die. The love you have for Christ can't die. It can become very weak. It it can become very uh, confused and even deformed at times. There can be all kinds of things that may be wrong with it, but it can't die. Once someone comes to Christ, he says, none shall snatch you out of my hand. So do you see the difference? The very growth of the faith and its health may be because of a bodily or physical affliction or some great trial that comes into our family or the loss of a loved one. It's the faith that doesn't die. The body does die. But faith doesn't. It's renewed day by day. The Psalms say the righteous shine more and more unto that perfect day. God promises a protection and a perseverance in the faith and love of the Christian. That he will protect that in faith. I will keep your faith And he will keep it alive to the end. So that no truly born-again Christian reaches that point of death where they're about to step into the other world with their faith having died. That it's there in old age or young age, if it's a disease, it's there. And that step is taken with God helping. And the faith and trust are there. God promises to preserve that unto the end. What a beautiful thing. And he does that by his sovereignty. Everything I've said to you there about your faith persevering 
You can, you must stand on the sovereignty of God to trust that and to have peace about that. Stand on the ground of God's sovereignty. That's what David's doing. Your foot will not stumble, stumble nor slip and you will not fall off the mountain or a cliff. Why? Because our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's sovereign. And God's sovereignty is for the believer. Even with suffering and affliction, our faith is in the hand of God's sovereignty. And we see, we see that in our lives, brothers and sisters. You must know and trust even at this time. Maybe you're afraid. and Maybe you're concerned. Maybe there's other things in your life you're very concerned about. Well, trust in God's sovereignty. View its size and its love and its grace. And trust yourself in his sovereignty. A child trusts when their arms go out. Um, And they're not sure if they're going to be held or they're going to be kept. But once they're held, they trust because they know the arms won't drop them. Well, we are the same with God, that all the days of our lives are appointed by him, Psalm 139. That all the different parts of our life are designed by his sovereignty and his eternal will. His hand is on that. It's by his will it happens that a man may plan his way the book of Proverbs says, but the Lord directs steps. The wonderful sermon John Calvin preached a very long time ago in a verse from Proverbs about the branch of a tree snapping and falling upon a man. And and his whole doctrine of God's sovereignty, uh, was a lot of it was tied to that verse, that even the branch snapping from the tree and, and injuring someone is part of God's sovereignty and it has a purpose. That all our steps... It's all ordained and controlled by God. Romans 8, that he works all things. They work and move and progress together in his infinite wisdom and mind. It's all for a purpose, for the good of those who love him. Even our death is controlled, that it's appointed for all men to die and then the judgment. It is appointed for every man to die it's fixed it's in God's hand he knows it's appointed and for the Christian that's comforting that God knows and there is no there truly is no such thing as an accident really there is only purpose and design and the Christian takes comfort too that at the end of that Christ says in John 14 I go to prepare a place for you So see that all the days of our life are ordained. We plan our way, but the Lord directs the footsteps. It all works in a purpose for the good of the called who love God. The death is appointed and fixed, and that beyond it, Christ has prepared a place for the individual believer. Could we be any more controlled, you know? Could we be any more cared for? It's all covered by God. It's all in place. And we are going through it as we ascend to Mount Zion. Isn't that wonderful? God is sovereign over these things for you. And uh, David says that God doesn't change in the midst of that. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's not watching at one moment, but then not watching at the next moment. He's not looking over on this side of the world and concentrating on it to the neglect and detriment of somewhere else in the world. He's 
We we must sleep. We fall asleep because we must rest. And we cannot watch over things that we would usually watch over. We have to trust and just go to sleep. And we're not watching. But God is not like that. He is the same. He is constant. He is watching this constantly. He is eternally aware of everything. There's nothing in the world right now he is not equally aware of from the events of people's lives to the ant that moves in the rainforest that no one sees. God is, he he is what we call um, omniscient. He knows all things. He knows all exhaustively. Wonderful thing to be in his hand in love when he is that knowledgeable and trustworthy. He doesn't change. His care for that's going out to you, does, it doesn't come in waves. It doesn't change and fluctuate. All his grace and wisdom and kindness and fatherly care is coming to you at a constantly committed rate all of the time. Whether you are feeling that at the time or not, it is true. He made heaven and earth. He holds the planets in his hand. There is, it is not hard for him at all to constantly watch you. It's coming to us constantly and daily and by hour and by minute. It's coming to us. And Christ's words at the end of the gospel are always fulfilled in our lives. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Isn't that wonderful? That you can hear that this morning. That for you who love Christ, he is with you always. He doesn't change, fall asleep, change his mind. And your whole life is mapped out by him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, no one can have that certainty. They, they, they have no right to that care or, or to assume that love will travel through that care to them. But in Christ, you can. We see it in Jesus. Just as I leave this, we see it in Jesus. That in the boat, when the storm came and he slept, In his humiliation, he did sleep. God slept in that sense. He's in the boat and he sleeps. The disciples are toiling and they say, Master, do you not care? And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That even when Christ was asleep, he was in control in that boat. That he knew what was going on. And that when he awoke, he was not shocked or surprised. He did not panic at all. But he commanded the creation as he does from heaven now for you and I. He commanded the creation and said to the storm, sit down, cease, do not move. And the creation obeys Christ. Not just God the Father, but entrusted to the Son who's king. The creation obeys Christ. And these things that are going around the world right now, they are obeying Christ. They are sent by him. And he's in control of each element and cell of the whole thing. He is in control. And it's him that says, be still and cease. Or it's him that says, continue in this direction. Jesus controls the whole thing. And that's why the world should be worshipping him this morning. Because that's who he is. It all obeys him. But no one acknowledges That No one acknowledges that he is worthy to be worshipped 
because he is the creator. He is sovereign. He is commanding all the elements. This is in his hand. Well, the Christian knows there is a God whose name is I am, and that is a comfort in Christ. The Christian knows that God is sovereign in Christ, and he's not changing all of the time and has mapped out a life for us in love. These are um, very comforting thoughts. He also is present with us. You see that in verse 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike by day nor the moon by night. And that word keeper is throughout the psalm. He keeps Israel. He will not slumber. He is your keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. He will keep your going out and coming in. But the Lord is your keeper in sovereignty. But he's near. He's tender. He's with the individual. He's not just a great God, but he's the God of the individual Christian. He's at your right hand. I just think that's a wonderful phrase. And it's worth, when we read a psalm like this, thinking about what does that mean? The Lord is at my right hand. It means he's near and close. And your right hand is, the, is your place of action. Most people are right-handed. It says even that God has Christ at his right hand. It's just the Bible's way of saying the place, your right hand is what you use to act. And you open doors with your right hand. You, you work with your right hand. You even protect yourself with your strongest arm. And he's saying here, whenever you're doing something like that, in the daily activities of life, when you need protection or the work you're endeavoring to do in his kingdom, the Lord is at your right hand. He's helping guide the hand. He's strengthening the hand. He's with you in that. This is a great picture of him being very near a creature in his glory and greatness. He builds it all, but he's at your right hand. And he is your shade, he adds. What does that mean? The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Well, in the desert where David was, in that part of the world, it's extremely hot during the day. It's dangerous to be out in the heat. Even in the United States, sometimes it's dangerous to be out in the heat. In Palestine, it is extremely perilous to be out in the heat in a desert where there is no shade. But God says, yes, the wilderness of this world has no natural shade for you, spiritually. But I am your shade. I'm at your right hand, and though there's nothing around that should protect you, I will create a shade. My hand will shade you so that you're not scorched by the sun. That, that's the picture here. So just put those two things together. I'm near you in Christ and in the Spirit. I'm inside the believer. I'm sovereign over the world and the city you live in. I'm there, but I'm near you. I'm for you. I am intimately connected to you. The the Old Testament said, God says to Israel, I am your husband. And as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride on the wedding day, so I take delight in you. God is your husband and he's there with you as a husband is at your right hand. And when the world is filled with disease, viral danger, when the world is filled with spiritual danger, when we're surrounded by the evil of the sin and the mass and the the sea of sin that surrounds us. He says here, I will shade you from that heat. 
the scorching heat of trial, of pain, of grief, bereavement, of depression, of, of the unbelief around you, of all that they're teaching, all you see in media that is designed by the devil to deceive man and to draw him into sin, I will protect you from all of that. Pray to me and come to me as Nathaniel went under his fig tree for shade from the heat. And Christ says, when you were under the fig tree, before Philip called you, I saw you. God in Christ promises each Christian to be near at the right hand when working, when protecting yourself, when acting in his name, when moving through this world. He is a shade in the Sahara Desert. He gave Jonah a shade, didn't he? And Jonah wasn't thankful for the shade, eventually. And he cursed it and complained about the shade, the tree God made miraculously grow, the gourd, And then it it rotted and, and Jonah complained. Well, we should be thankful. As we walk, we say, it's hot. It's tough. It's a tough world to live in. Yes. But the Lord is thy shade at thy right hand. Christ is at God's right hand. But in the spirit, he is also at your right hand. As God is on his throne and Christ is at his right hand and the right hand of the mighty Lord doth ever valiantly, as God extends in Christ his right hand to you, he is at your right hand. His right hand is towards you and your right hand is towards him. You are close There is activity. He is with you. When it's scorching during the day and when it's cold at night, the sun will not strike you and the moon will not strike you. You will not be struck to utterly fall and collapse and be destroyed as a Christian. When it's during daytime hours, when when it's the heat of the trial or whether it's the coldness at nighttime, no matter which danger it is, nighttime is a time of danger. When Jews could be attacked on the way to Jerusalem. When robbers come out to steal. When it's very cold and wild animals, nocturnal animals, come out at that time to hunt. Well, God is saying to his people there, I will keep you, night or day. The Lord is sovereign and unchanging. The Lord is present and just briefly, lastly, the Lord is faithful to the end. Verse 7 and 8. He will keep us, preserve us from all evil. Paul puts it that way. Neither depth nor height, nor angel nor principality nor power, nor any created thing, nor life nor death, nor things present, nor things to come. Whatever it is, If it's evil, ultimately the Lord will preserve you and protect you from it. You will make it to Jerusalem. You might have some wounds and some scars. You might have tears and things that you still remember that each time you recall them to mind, they bring emotion and weeping and regret even to you. That's the lot of the Christian, and we shouldn't fight that. We bring all that to heaven, 
and there it will all be resolved. We carry it all to heaven, but those evils, whatever they are, will not prevent us getting to heaven if we're in Christ. What a promise. He will guard you from all evil and preserve. He says your soul, it means your life, even your spiritual life. He will keep and preserve your life, your essential spiritual and even physical life. Even if you're dying or uh, there is a disease and it begins to defeat the body, he is keeping you through that process and will preserve your life. The life that matters, the life that will never end. His life in Christ is there. And you will take that life through the gates of death into Christ's glorious kingdom of life. He's faithful to the end. See how he binds himself, Jesus. He swore an oath. If Jesus breaks that oath, he sins. I say if. We know he can't break the oath. It's not in his nature, but you know what I mean. Our unbelief has to ask that question. Can he break his oath? No, because he would sin. He can't change his oath. Once you've oathed something, that's it. He can't change his oath. He doesn't want to. He's bound himself as a husband in marriage by oath to the church, his bride. You, he is your husband and he's committed more than any husband has ever lived in this earth. He's sealed you. He's engaged you and betrothed you. He's married you. And he will take you, your spiritual life. Even in this time, no matter what is going on, What you're doing is spirit-filled and prayerful. Whichever way you're serving him, he will use you for as long a time as he is appointed. Whether you're young or old, he can use you for his glory, preserving you because he's bound to you in oath and marriage. He's committed to you and he, he will not change. That the perseverance of the saints that's taught in the Reformed faith, the perseverance of the saints is founded upon the perseverance of God. The holy part will overcome, our confession says. It will overcome the sinful part. And our faith will prevail and persevere to the end until it's perfected by sight. But that's based upon that God perseveres, that he's faithful. And you and I, in Christ Jesus, will persevere through this journey of peril. All the way, he says, from this time forth unto, the word is, olam, eternity. This time forth to eternity till the ship arrives at the haven. Until we arrive at Jerusalem. Until we arrive at the mountains of that ancient spiritual city, heaven, that is filled with an innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. That ancient temple, that royal house, that city of God, that perfect creation, that perfect world where there is no sin or darkness, And the gates are open day and night. And there is no serpent to harm it. And there is no danger. 
where the people of God love one another perfectly and see Christ in unveiled glory and life, saturated with the Holy Spirit, and where we will have that glory ourselves, the glory he has, for we shall be like him and see him as he is. And we have that glory and that bodily and soulish everlasting life. The full capacity of a body in its prime at the pinnacle of manhood and womanhood, of a mind that's unstained by sin and perfectly serene and clear, of a soul that loves perfectly and worships him perfectly. Our bodies and souls will shine and glow with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And we will be there night and day, as the psalm says, in his house, praising his name, that he has gone there and prepared a personal place for each of us, a room for each believer that's designed for them, that he knows them by name, with a name that he has given them, that no one knows but him and them, where you will have the intimate and emotional and loving closeness with someone, untainted by sin, without need of covering, but you will be united to him in a perfect relationship where you know him fully and he knows you fully and you will have everlasting joy upon your head. This is what Christianity has. This is what has been revealed by God. Him who made heaven and earth has heaven there and makes a new heaven and earth. And he preserves us until we arrive and climb that mountain of Zion into that perfect,